This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 49, Home Alone. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. I'm Dana Duncan. Before we get started, just a few follow-up housekeeping notes. First, we have a new email list for each new episode. If you would like to be a part of that, contact us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. There's some cool stuff I'm adding to it each week, like some trivia and behind-the-scenes facts that don't even make it to the show, so you're definitely going to want to jump on that if you're a regular listener. Second, we only have one more episode this season before we're going to take a bit of a break. We have our big year-end episode featuring what's generally considered one of the best films of all time, Casablanca. You'll want to tune in for that episode to see how it comes out of our patented Stanley Rubric rating system. With that, Dad, happy holidays. This is our yearly Christmas episode. We are featuring Home Alone. So what is your relationship to this movie? Well, I tried to think back, and this is 30 years, so I had a difficult time. I don't think we saw it at the movie theater because your mother and I would have been first married and we would have had a small child. So my thought is, is we probably saw this on VHS or HBO when it came available probably into the summer or may have even been the next Christmas. You ever have something that seems familiar to you, but you just can't recall having seen something? Like, you know the premise, you know who's in it, it seems somewhat familiar, like you've seen clips of it, and and you can have this picture in your mind, but you just simply can't remember watching it. That was me for this movie. I kind of alluded to it at the end of our last episode that I don't recall watching this, but I know that I have at some point or another. And I think especially with some of these movies that are early on in childhood, so just a uh, potential dating of myself, this movie came out five or six months after I was born. This was December, I believe, of 1990. I was July of 1990. And so this is not one that... I have a strong connection with because I just simply don't remember seeing it. It was never like one of those that we played constantly. Like we did uh, it's a wonderful life in the house or every Christmas that it was like a requirement. We had to watch this movie. And frankly, we didn't watch a ton of Christmas movies. There was usually one or two go-tos. This was never one of them. So my relationship is a little limited. That being said, I did enjoy the rewatch of this, uh, provided that I have seen it before. Some ways I was experiencing it like a new movie. So, as we do each week, let's just kind of go through the basic plot summary and recognition. When bratty eight-year-old Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin, acts out the night before a family trip to Paris, his mother, played by Catherine O'Hara, makes him sleep in the attic. After the McAllisters mistakenly leave for the airport without Kevin... He awakens to an empty house and assumes his wish to have no family has come true. But his excitement sours when he realizes that two conmen, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, plan to rob the McAllister residence, and that he alone must protect the family home. This movie was nominated for Best Original Score for John Williams, as well as Best Song for Somewhere in My Memory, 
music again by John Williams. So, Dad, what is this movie about? Well, this movie is the dream of every kid about Macaulay Culkin's age at that time, which is being able to be home alone and have control or run of the house. He does all the stuff that every kid dreams about. Jumping on the bed, eating ice cream in the middle of the night, watching TV that he isn't supposed to be watching, looking at uh, Playboy magazines in his brother's closet or his brother's uh, trunk. All the stuff you're not supposed to do, he gets to do. And it's the thought process involved there of him kind of, I get to do everything I want and then realizing it's kind of empty and I really ultimately liked my family, even though I said I didn't. And then coming to realize the importance of your family. By the same token, it's the family the other way, which is he's the annoying little kid, the annoying baby of the family that everybody's upset with all the time because he keeps acting out. And yet they all come to appreciate him when they don't have him any longer. I thought it was a sheer representation of you never know what you've got till it's gone. And I was talking about this a bit in the office today, and it appears to me that most John Hughes movies are very obvious in their premise. I mean, you think about Ferris Bueller or The Breakfast Club or whatever else, there's a very easy plot to follow, but the real message of most of his films is underneath all of them. And in this one, for me, it especially resonated in a year like 2020, uh, given that most of us are not even able to make the choice of whether we're going to possibly spend the holidays alone. It's, you know, how important can family be in a situation like the holidays? And when you're in kind of a, a forced representation of that for some of us, what that really hits home in this year well, of course, it also tells you don't join a polka band. Uh, always le- good lessons for life, uh, especially those from the <laughs> from people from Wisconsin. Uh, you can take those uh, little little nuggets away. Uh, <laughs> Sheboygan, Sheboygan, yeah. All right, best performer for you, uh, Macaulay Culkin. I mean, he really made the movie. You know, everything from having the the scenes of, you know, the facial reactions, um, the the times he tried to act more adult, um, all the little comments, his little talking to himself in the mirror, really kind of made it for me. He just really did a very nice job. I think it kind of is the, the centerpiece of his career. He's kind of a complicated situation. I know a lot of people love him from these movies, and he kind of got a certain level of stardom as a result of uh, Home Alone, Home Alone 2. And there's always kind of a binary set when it comes to child actors. Either they do really well, or they do really poorly. I I don't think there's ever any in-between when it comes to kid actors most of the time. I, I can't think of any single performance that I said was just mediocre well and it goes the broad spectrum with child actors because you have some that make the transition to adult and then those that don't seem to struggle and have a hard time creating a career although some of them 
have actually been more successful when they've gotten out of acting completely. Uh, and I can turn to a guy like Ken Osborne, who played uh, Haskell um, in Leave it to Beaver, and I'm drawing a blank as the, the character's first name, became a police officer in Los Angeles, had nothing to do with acting, had a very successful career, left, retired as a police officer, went back to acting later on when they did a Leave it to Beaver reunion. Uh, my best performer was Catherine O'Hara, uh, who played the mom, Kate McAllister. I think she had to play two very different roles. One where, uh, one of the scenes I'm going to eventually nominate, but is that opening sequence. So I remember very distinctly, every time we were going to go on vacation, the night before was always like this, and this hit me so well. Like, I, you could have been thrown into any family vacation preparation, like, the night before, and this was completely accurate to my memory of all of them. Just the chaos that's going on, uh, how many people are just running around, they're frantic, they're um, doing so many different things, and uh, <laughs> the way Catherine O'Hara seems to embody what I remember about mom every time we were going to go on vacation the kind of <laughs> like almost sheer panic of that she was going to forget something and then she just is so blind to everything else that's going on around it that uh, I sometimes wonder well I guess I was wondering more when I was watching this movie as to uh, why um, people are so like absent-minded by the whole thing and the, the amount of panic for going on trips like these. You you mean like trying to drive into the garage with the topper on the van? Yeah, something like that. Uh, we don't know anybody who might have done that, do we? No. No. Okay. No one at all. Especially not twice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the uh, way she has to play that kind of absent-mindedness early on in the movie to transition when Kevin gets in trouble and that sequence where he's kind of having it out with her when she's sending him to the attic. You know, you don't really mean that, do you? You know, that that hurt uh, that you could definitely feel that she clearly embodied in that moment and then for all of that to kind of go by the wayside uh, as they forget him. You know, and then her mad dash to try and fit... She just had the fullest range of emotions for anybody in the movie. She's the frantic mother, and she has so many different parts to play within this one uh, character role that I, I thought she did an excellent job. Because, honestly, if the mother's not frantic, if the rest of it, it then there's no urgency to the rest of the movie of anything else that's taking place with Kevin. And so I, I think it kind of makes the movie. I was expecting her to put on some wigs and have Daniel Levy show up any moment. I thought that she would do some weird accent about her acting career. I, I forgot so much that she was in this movie. And so, uh, especially for somebody who uh, just got done binge-watching Shit's Creek over the last like year and a half, it uh, certainly was a bit of a transition to see her in something else like this. Especially because... To a certain extent, I mentioned it before, it's like experiencing this movie for the first time in some ways for me. You watched this movie a at least twice that I know about when you were young, because you loved slapstick. Every time we showed the movie, you would just laugh 
and giggle until you were like your whole body would shake whenever there was something like the paint cans hit uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern in the face. You thought that was the funniest thing you'd ever seen in your life. So uh, there are a couple of moments, particularly with the booby traps that still hold up and I think will be reflected in my uh, classicness score as we go along. All right, your best secondary performer. I thought about both Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, and I ultimately came to the conclusion to go with Daniel Stern because Joe Pesci was basically Joe Pesci. Um, He basically was the obnoxious, heavy-handed, brutish type that he plays in almost every film, except a little bit lesser in this because it's a comedy instead of a... uh, a gangster or a mafia film. So Daniel Stern, one little tidbit. I, um, your mother uh, was uh, an exchange student coordinator, and one of the couples that uh, we would go on these conferences with, we would travel to the annual conference. Um, one of them, the, the woman came and said, yeah, when I was in high school, I was kind of in theater, and we had this geek that was on our uh you know, was in all of our plays. Everybody thought he was kind of odd. And then all of a sudden, I go and watch a film. It's about these guys who ride bikes around New York as messengers. And I'm like, hey, that's Daniel Stern, the guy I went to high school with. And then all of a sudden, he's in Home Alone, and he's a big star. I certainly appreciate the the wet bandit combination. Uh, <laughs> I think they are by far the funniest characters throughout the entirety of the movie, um, with the exception of John Candy, who I'd like to at least give a, a small mention to. I mean, it's a cameo appearance. Didn't John Candy pass away like shortly after this film? Like, I want to say it was uh, like li- early, late 1990, 1991, somewhere in that range. It was a little later than that because this really kind of. He did a couple of films after this, one of which was for John Hughes. I, I believe Uncle Buck was after this. And then he died during the filming of a movie called Wagons East. Okay. At the time when he was doing that film, and I can't remember who his co-stars were in it, but somebody had commented that he was like consuming two pizzas at dinner along with a gallon of ice cream and then washing it down with like a fifth of bourbon. And, yes. and you know, and that was like every night. And they were like, he, he was killing himself with food and, and alcohol. And I ultimately, that's what ended up happening. He had a massive heart attack and died in his, I think it was early 40s. Yeah, I know he died rather suddenly and rather young and Honestly, if you ate like that, it's really kind of self-explanatory. So unfortunate because, I mean, he was an incredibly funny guy, and you can still see it in even these small bursts that we get here. Uh, I thought it was a great small cameo for him uh, in order to do this movie. But uh, my best secondary performer was John Hughes. He didn't direct the movie that was Chris Columbus, uh, the kind of famous... um, Uh, franchise director but uh, he uh, did write and produce the movie and there's just something about all of the scripts that he seemed to come up with 
they're very simple in their concepts or their premises, but they have such a depth to them that uh, this one really got to me and, and hit me in a lot of different places emotionally that uh, I'll get to here in a, in a minute or two. But I, I just appreciated how well written the scene or the movie was because it was simple and accessible that people who didn't necessarily want to think more deeply about the movie could enjoy it. It was entertaining. It was short. It didn't extend itself well beyond the point where it needed to. And yet at the same time, it had something deeper to it that if you really kind of sat and thought about it, it it had a nice Christmassy type message. And so I just appreciated kind of how the story was constructed and what he did in order to create this. Because it's difficult to write up a story completely out of nowhere. And he also been a very good fan driver. Because I saw him there, you know, when they panned it, I had forgotten that he had done the cameo as the guy from the polka band who ordered the, the, the van and then ended up driving it. Until I watched it again, and I'm like, oh, well, that's John Hughes. Yeah, I kind of got that one myself. I wasn't certain, and I didn't look it up, but I thought pretty sure, sh- I was pretty sure that uh, that was him. So... It, it doesn't surprise me that he pops up occasionally, because if you get to a certain status as a director, that's kind of like one of the few things that you've earned the right to be able to do. So uh, to piggyback a little bit off of your Daniel Stern anecdote, uh, he is my most charismatic award. I don't know why. There is no way in hell that he, that he should be the most charismatic of this movie, and yet for whatever reason... I love him the most out of any of the characters in this movie. It He's just such a lovable dope. I mean, it, <laughs> he's just got this way about him that he's the crazy Harry. Uh, or, excuse me, I guess he's not Harry, he's Marv. And uh, But, you know, he's he just kind of seems like he's fried out on dope. Uh, and, I don't know, there's just some quality to him that seems accessible yet funny and endearing in its uh humor but i did read a a piece uh an interview that he did which is he considered home alone to be both the best and worst part of his career because he always became infamous for doing the film but what the film did was is doing those two films it paid him enough that he never had to worry about what he did after that he could do off-Broadway, he could do all these different movies, independent films, that type of stuff. So he could always do what he wanted. But yet again, he's always remembered as Barr from Home Alone. Well, I think, especially in the modern sense, given that in order to become a movie star, quote-unquote, you have to basically be a part of a franchise of some high note or regard, one that's at least somewhat successful, and it sets you up in the ability to do all of the other things that you might want to do with your career. That's probably what this was for him. I, I certainly can understand that. But, you know, that's the story of Matt Damon, you know, George Clooney, uh, as far as, like, getting certain things that you're allowed to do or be able to do so that you can do the one-for-me, one-for-them type of situation. Who was your most charismatic? I had Joe Pesci simply because Joe Pesci has a presence that he just has a knack. He's kind of that lovable asshole 
<laughs> that is in every film. Uh, and this kind of really launched his career. He had done other things, obviously, the gangster-type films and such. You know, it was, I think it was right after this he did My Cousin Vinny, which was really his first starring role. And he kind of had his career take off a bit after this. But he just had a presence that uh, I thought was very powerful within the film. So this was definitely the height of his career. He uh, starred in Goodfellas in the same year, a movie we've already covered. So if you want to refer back to that, I believe that's episode five for us. But uh, you are somewhat correct, 1992. So this came out late or the last part of 1990. Uh, 1992 was My Cousin Vinny. So this is probably about peak Joe Pesci. So that takes us to best scene. I've kind of already nominated one, and I'll, I'll go through it. It's got probably multiple scenes to it, more or less, but I'm going to nominate that first portion, the cheese pizza incident. Uh, it does a great dr- job of dropping you into this world, and I, I think, I can't remember who, it might have been one of the screenwriting videos that I'd been watching just to um, kind of study up on, on our craft, more or less. Uh, but the the really good script developments are when you can drop somebody into the middle of a situation that doesn't need a lot of exposition to explain, and you get a lot of small pieces out of it without having to have all of this huge dialogue. So you already mentioned one piece of it, that he's the kid who's picked on as far as uh, the runt of the family. You have the situation where he's going to have to sleep with his cousin who wets the bed. You have uh, that he's kind of the overlooked member of the family. You have that his brother picks on him uh, by eating his pizza. So he's kind of left out, and somehow he gets shafted out of all of this, that uh, he ends up getting the blame because he starts to stand up for himself in that one moment, and so that it creates the big level of conflict in that early portion of the film uh, that eventually leads to that that sequence with uh, his mom. You know, I wish you guys, or I never, or I never want to see you jerks again. I think that's that's the specific line. But that whole sequence of how the family's interacting, getting Uncle Frank in there with uh, his aunt and uncle, and all the pieces that go together with the family. It's just a nice way of introducing you into the moment or into the movie and kind of dropping you in without making it feel uncomfortable or that you're lost. And that's kind of a good craft. Well, that scene that you mentioned, I mean, every family, I think, has gone through similar circumstances or situations like that. And every person or every family has the person in a similar situation as Kevin in that. This time he pushes Buzz, his older brother, and he knocks it to the table. It's not like he stood on a chair and lectured everybody in the room. Like yeah, you went to the did. exact place that I, I thought of. Yeah. Because they were putting the uh, purple blanket over her head. Yes, because everybody was picking on her. So she had to try to figure out how she was going to stand up to everybody. And since she was only a little squirt, she stood, stood on a chair so she could be above everybody else and talk down to them for once in her life. So, yes, it was the first and last time that she ever stood above anyone. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not right. like any of us are 
uh, going to be playing in the NBA anytime? Uh, no, we're uh, kind of on the cusp of disability in the Scandinavian countries. All right. Uh, what's your first nominee? Uh, I actually had the whole opening scene with Joe Pesci standing there kind of scoping the house out and the family running around and and the it it, it reminded me of a French farce where somebody chases somebody in one door and somebody else comes out another and whatever that's kind of the the feel that I had for that scene it kind of set the tone of what was going on and why they would uh, leave Kevin home alone because everything was so chaotic leading up to the scene with the pizza that you understood that nothing was normal. I guess now that you're mentioning it, the, the French farce point of view, it seems very theatrical. So if uh, you've been to some type of theater production or play, a stage play, there's a, a way that this plays out with Pesci standing there where uh, you'd be introduced to all of the characters. And it's kind of now that I'm thinking about it, written in a way that he could very easily be introduced to every single one of the characters. And you could play that out where he's standing in the doorway of the house in a theater play and it works in exactly the same way. But they're all brushing past him. I don't know if you've ever seen the play, but there was a play from the early 60s that uh, was called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And it was supposed to be set in ancient Rome. Uh, Robert Morris, who was on Mad Men and played Cooper, uh, starred in that. Uh, it was made into a movie. I saw the play performed once. Um, there's a scene in there where it's all that, where you're going in one door and then somebody else is like coming out looking for the person who just went into the other door and they're going back and forth and all over. That's what you're having with this scene. It was almost dizzying. <laughs> I'm laughing at the sheer fact that I'm feeling uh, discombobulated because of all the chaos going on. I'm getting a headache because I'm just like reliving it. Yeah, I certainly uh, had no trouble relating to the situation. Uh, all right, my next one, and we've kind of already talked about it, but it's John Candy's appearance as Gus Polinsky. <laughs> I mean, two guys, the two of us are from Wisconsin, so this like has an extra degree where it, it sits well with us because we know Sheboygan and Kenosha and uh, all of these places, but I, I don't know. Oh, you know that song that we produced? Oh, you never heard of that one. Well, how about this other song that we... And he's, like, just so amazed that they'd never heard of a polka band when this should be just completely obvious that nobody would listen to polka. I still don't know why in Wisconsin we insist on this being a thing. Well, if you go to Milwaukee to the uh, conference center, they have, like, the Hall of Fame of polka oh, in the, uh, along the escalator. So as you're going up the escalator from Wisconsin Avenue to get into the conference center from over by what used to be the Boston store, they it's all polka music as you're going up where they have all of the photos of all the great polka artists of Wisconsin. Like Is that Frankie like the Yankovic. Jewish Sports Hall of Fame? Uh, yeah, about. <laughs> so 
So I always laugh every time I get on that elevator because they always have the state school board convention there. And I was a school board member for nine years. And we'd go to there, and it was like every time, hearing all the polka music going up the escalator. I'm like, okay, yeah. Yes, being a uh, Polka Hall of Famer in Milwaukee is like being the smartest member of Jersey Shore. Yeah, well, it, the only thing that I can say is, is at least we're not North Dakota, because there they have the Lawrence Walk Museum. Yes, kids, for a reference that's incredibly dated, <laughs> see Dana. <laughs> All right, what's your next nominee? Uh, the airplane realization where she's just sitting on the air or where Catherine O'Hara is just sitting on the plane and she's like, um, oh, there's something I forgot. There's something I forgot. And everybody's trying to say, oh, I, I, it's the garage door. I forgot to close the garage door. That's what you're worried about. No. And then you know, back and forth. And then all of a sudden it's like they zoom the camera and she goes, Kevin. And then from there on the entire trajectory of the film changes and it's all now about instead of the trip it's like no i gotta get home to see or to save kevin because and now it's i'm the most horrible mother ever um because i left my son and didn't even realize he was home alone there is kind of even a a few lines to that you know what kind of mother am i i think it uh is a scene or so later uh but most of us have had that moment of trying to think there's something we feel we forgot and we can't put our finger on it my only problem with that entire sequence is it doesn't feel earned like she doesn't lead her mind up to how or where she all of a sudden realizes it's kevin like there's no well let me check on the kids and you know you're starting to look for him and where is he sort of thing she suddenly stumbles on that one fact and it's out of the complete blue that that's my only problem is is we're out of the clear blue sky she suggested the coffee pot she suggested the garage door locking the doors to the house all of these things that would be normal about small things that you might have left on or done incorrectly and then you get to this big realization and you haven't led up to it almost at all how many times were we on a vacation and we're walking someplace and your mother's like looking all over going, Where, where's Tom? Where's Tom? Where's Tom? And then like he's standing right next to you. That's not the same thing at all. But that's exact. No, it is. Because that's where that would have been a much more uh, honest reaction where all of a sudden she's like looks around the plane going, okay. Is everybody here that's supposed to be here? And that's then she stands, what I just said. I know, and I'm agreeing with you. Ah, so, okay. I, I, I know it's a difficult concept for you to understand when I agree with you. But I just thought I would share, give you that opportunity. So you should actually like write this down that I agreed with you on something. So yeah, that you can I, savor it later. Kind of yeah, like a fine wine or a fine brandy. Well, I think I'd give you the notable uh, declaration on this particular day, kind of like how they do those, uh, uh, on this particular day, it was so-and-so's day, because you finally agreed with a correct opinion. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, I'm going to go springing the traps. Honestly, this movie 
if there's a, an indelible moment to any of this, it's probably the traps or the, the self-defense of the house. It's them trying to break in and him inventing all of these ways, which are incredibly clever for an eight-year-old. Although he's proven himself over the course of the movie by going to the store, buying dinner for himself, cleaning himself, doing laundry, being capable of basically being a somehow um, stable adult at eight years old. I certainly can't understand that one, but uh, I'll save that for uh, unanswerable questions. The... Uh, degree to which he does these rather clever but very simple and not even terribly extravagant booby traps. The tar on the stairs, the uh, iron to the face, the um, paint cans dropped from the, the stairwell, the ice over of the, the stairwells. You know, those are very small things that he was able to do. The one extravagant thing was putting the rope line out into the middle of the yard. And even then, he somehow still gets caught and he has to get bailed out by Old Man Marley. I just thought, uh, for what the franchise has become, because uh, I know once you get to, like, Home Alone 3 or Home Alone 4, the traps become these just ridiculous, like, Rube Goldberg machines, almost, where they're defending the house from the bandits. But uh, these seemed rather <laughs> simple by comparison. You know, you put out some ornaments that they're going to have to step over and cut their feet on or uh, put a nail in the, the tar that he'll step on and not see, you know. Very small things that are practical that you could easily find around the house as opposed to all of this extravagance. And I thought, honestly, in the rewatch, uh, because I remember that being a part of the movie, Again, I don't remember necessarily what the traps all were. I just know that he clearly, because I remember the premise of the movie, that he defends the house from these burglars. But the the degree to which he does it is impressive. Yes, it is. But it all, as you indicated, everything that was involved in this process was relatively simple. It wasn't overly elaborate, didn't take a lot of planning or scheming. And so the simplicity of how this eight-year-old could overcome these two adult men was really what made it funny. Um, and that, that, that subtlety was lost on the subsequent film. Uh, I doubt if we will be reviewing Home Alone 2. Probably not. Anyway, um, and I, I think to some extent that's the exact problem that comes in with these films is, is that the part that's really enticing and what made the movie good uh, was lost because they have to feel like they have to one-up it. And it goes beyond what an eight-year-old should be able to contrive or conceive and do. Well, I'll even take it in a slightly different direction. It's not that the realism isn't there because I think some of the humor is still there, but that becomes the sole part of the movie. I think what works well in this is the balance between the uh, emotional and the humorous and how well they're able to navigate between the two without one kind of outweighing the other. You know, there isn't a huge scenario where he's got to defend the house multiple times against the burglars. He just creates some rather uh, unique ways to either uh, make the burglars go away because they think people are home or that he ultimately has that lead-up scene. So it doesn't become the sole center point of the movie. There, it, 
it's working in many different facets. And so because of that balance, I think it works much better in this movie by comparison to some of its sequels. Do you have any other nominees? Well, it's part of the whole battle action or the, the, the booby traps and such, but it's a unique scene in and of itself, so I'm going to highlight it. You're going to separate it out, okay. Yes, it's the tarantula on the face. <laughs> okay, yeah, I kind of forgot that one in doing my notes. When, the, when he puts the tarantula on Daniel Stern's face and that scream, that blood-curdling scream, you, you just want to, like, yeah, okay, I understand. Because it's obvious that he is arachnophobic and he just hates it. And then the scene, or the, the, the tarantula ends up on Pesci and he's going to just... Hold still, Mars. Don't, don't, Marv, Marv, don't. And then he, like, hauls off and just wails on him with the crowbar trying to kill the tarantula. (laughs) Did you just Uh, make uh, Pesci somehow Irish? You you made him sound like a Lucky Charms character. uh, Okay, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'd have to listen to it. All right. All right, the next one I'm going to nominate is one that's kind of uh, in the middle of the movie. It's kind of taking place before all of the uh, action at the end with the burglars. And it's probably the most beautiful scene of the movie as far as I'm concerned. And that's Kevin kind of connecting, I don't know, finding his somewhat mirror in a personality, being related or relating to someone else in Old Man Marley. You know, he's scared of this guy that they've created this scary picture of in their head that he's killed his entire family. And it's actually much more simple than that, obviously. But he's essentially estranged his entire family. He has done what Kevin has done, but in the more adult sense. Kevin wished his family away, and he thinks he's made his entire family disappear. So that's why he obviously goes to visit Santa at the end of the movie. Two grown daughters. You just, there's a certain aspect of it that just rang true to me. The way, or the reason that was the favorite to me is it's the one that gave me the most reaction out of any particular scene in this movie. Because the minute he basically insinuates that it's not his fault for his infidelities, it's his daughter's, I'm like, you, dude, you are so full of shit. Right now, you are just making it up. No matter how well the Holy Grail would have done getting the life of Brian done for that reason. All right, so what did you have down for novelty, then? Well, it was unique because it was uh, a historical piece written entirely nonsensical with a comedy base. I don't remember ever seeing a film like it before it predated very you know airplane and and some of the other films of that genre where it's basically just joke after joke after joke and so i gave it a fairly high novelty score for that reason because i don't ever remember seeing anything like it before so i went with a nine on this for that very reason All right, so this is where I'm going to quibble with that number just slightly. 
not not for a matter of opinion, but rather a matter of fact. I would say this is a genre film and that they're writing jokes around a genre film because you're poking fun at, you know, medieval or um, some type of fantasy with King Arthur and that sort of thing. And King Arthur had been done at least movie quality wise before that. Now they were doing it on a shorter budget. So thus why they went to some more absurd extremes with the coconuts and then the final sequence, which we'll get here to in a minute. But how is this any different? I, the comedy's different. That's where I separate it. But as far as a genre-breaking comedy, uh, how is this that much different than Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles that came before it? Now, I again, and in the what 70s, I'm gonna say this is, is experimental. This wasn't something tried and true. It's not like Scary Movie or some of the other things. But I, I do knock it a little bit for that. Well, the difference is... The difference is that, yes, there are funny lines and funny moments in Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and such, but um, there's a central story that you're telling with jokes written into it. This is more of its jokes, and they just filled it in with the central story to hold it together. So the approach, and again, the humor style is different. So I'm not going to quibble with that. I went with a seven because of that. But I I think as far as how to do a comedy movie, I can't give it full merits on that, that edge of it. Okay. I understand your point. So what was your number again? Nine. All right. So that's an eight. I think that's reasonable. Uh, classicness, this is going to be probably more suggestive than or subjective than we otherwise have been. And this is going to be the difficulty with comedies is whether the jokes hold up. I'm sure for you they do. For me, they do not. I went with a Bellwether 5. Very rarely did I get anything more than a chuckle from this movie. And I've told you repeatedly, the ending, it's even worse now that I've re-seen it. I just thought that, like, they had some explanation behind the arrest or whatever else. But I do have one important figure on my side about the ending. Notably, John Cleese. John Cleese has said the most regrettable thing about this movie is the ending. He hates it. Okay. And apparently the only reason that they went for this is, is again, they were uh, out of money and there was supposed to be some big battle sequence that Michael Palin wrote about at some point, but they ran out of money. So they thought it was uh, more absurd and Michael Palin thought it was funnier for them to just get arrested. (laughs) Okay. But I gave it a bellwether five. And really, if you stop and think about it, how did Seinfeld end? I don't care because I didn't think Seinfeld was funny either. Unpopular opinion. Uh-huh. I When I saw how Seinfeld ended, I thought of the ending of the Holy Grail, which is they tried to find the most absurd thing you could, which is they ended up all arrested and in jail. And so I thought that was really a uh, an homage to the whole, or to Monty Python. I've never, I, I would love to ask, 
Seinfeld that or um, Larry Murray David. David, if that's entered into their consideration at all. Um, but having watched a few episodes of Arrested Development, Larry David's sense of humor is not far off from being a python. Larry David has nothing to do with Arrested Development. Excuse me. Do you mean Curb Your Enthusiasm? Excuse me, yes. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. Very different shows. Yes. So what was your classicness score? I went with a 8.5 because there is some date or some datedness of the jokes. You know, if you look back on it, and, and the only way I think sometimes it ages better than it does, they did a lot of cross-dressing and a lot of homosexual jokes. But a large portion of that, and you can say it ages better because Graham Chapman was gay. And so... Oh, I guess I didn't know that. Yes. And he... Uh, was right in the middle of writing most of those jokes and being involved in most of those jokes. So to some extent, because of that, you can give them a little more wiggle room than what you should. I certainly don't think that they had, well, and maybe this is just, I'm either having a huge blind spot or something else. I really didn't see a whole lot of cringy jokes for modern sensibilities in this. There were a couple of things sexually, but, like, nothing that got my antenna up on the uh, modern liberalism or political correctness, you know, the PC police type of uh, sentimentality that I often have. But, you know, there's no real racist jokes in here because everybody's white anyway. (laughs) Uh, Like you said, I I really didn't even get – that there were really any homosexual jokes or anything that, you know, again, I I just, there's nothing in here from that point of view that uh, you might get where we're still debating when it's going to be appropriate again to do Blazing Saddles. Yes, that was a conversation I was having with uh, your mother, sister, and grandmother over lunch um, because we were talking about the film for we're you know the recording for tonight and we were talking about that and of course sarah your sister says well what's wrong with blazing saddles oh sarah (laughs) i'm like um you know poor innocent sarah yes and and of course your mother says well (laughs) the entire thing is is extremely racist and I said, yeah, but you know who wrote all the jokes, well, the racist okay. jokes, was was it, it, it's Richard racist Pryor. in the same it, it's racist in the same way that doing a musical called Springtime for Hitler is <laughs> racist. I mean, it it's, well, yes, written by a Jew. Taking back a certain level of power because the primary hero or character is a black sheriff in a western. When most Westerns, if they featured a black person, uh, they barely got any speaking lines and were usually a farmhand. Yes. So there is a bit of uh, some reclamation, and I know saying that as a white person is kind of maybe another big blind spot for me, but I think that was the heart of what the movie was supposed to be. 
But interspersed in there are a ton of bad name-calling jokes, uh, racial jokes, stereotypical jokes. Yeah, it's it's just chock full of that. So well, anyway. Even, yeah, even to the Busley, or Busby Berkeley scene at the end with Dom DeLuise, boy, that's, an, that's a cringeworthy moment in and of itself. But we don't want the Irish. Uh, yes. All right. Anyway, rewatchability. Do you want mine first or do you want your own? Oh, Gil, give yours. All right. So this isn't on the level of some of the silent films that I watched because <laughs> I have a hard time with silent films. So I can't put it as, as a one in all good consciousness. It's not um, out of Africa, which is just. Uh, overly long and for no good reason, even though I did get some level of enjoyment from that. So it wasn't even quite at that level. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but we wanted to create new barometers. So I gave it a two. Words cannot express how dumb I think this movie is and how difficult it is for me to hold my attention up because there's no central narrative to the story. I've told you repeatedly that narrative is one of the biggest things to me. And the if you want to ruin a movie for me, have the narrative not make any sense. And in this movie, there's no flipping narrative. It just goes constantly back and forth between things they apparently thought were funny. <laughs> and you find that Christopher Nolan is the greatest director today? I mean, his narratives no, 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 are all no, no, no. over the place. No, no, no. First off, if you want to get into a conversation with Christopher Nolan, to follow his narratives is a somewhat of a puzzle. So I find that engaging. He's my favorite director. I did not say he was the best director because okay. partly he really disappointed me on Tenet. But that's another day and another movie. <laughs> yes. A few years from now at the best. Rewatchability. Well, I'm going to balance you out. I don't give this score often. Ten. All right. I mean, I, I watching it again. There's certain scenes and certain lines that I forgot about because I don't I don't get to watch it as much as I thought would like to because I know it annoys most of the people around me about it. You know, watching it too much or too frequently, but. Well, there's just a certain level of absurdity and dryness that just doesn't connect in the same way from uh, uh, my funny bone. I appreciate lots of variations in comedy, all kinds of different things. I mean, I just happened, I was having a very stressful day and I needed about 15 minutes to just completely you know, change my attitude. I happened to turn on my TV in my office and they had Naked Gun 33 and a third on, which is a lot of physical humor at the Academy Awards. Yes. And I just bust out laughing. I could not stop laughing. I laughed for 15 minutes and felt so much better. But again, physical humor, I enjoy, I like you know, there's a ton of different things um, I can appreciate. And uh, so I just have an appreciation for the dryness of this and for the 
plan of the just absurdity of the situation. Honestly, I'm uh, I'm going to knock myself a little bit here. I'm a comedy snob. I have a very small cross section of things that appeal to me as funny, and so I re- recognize that I'm never going to get every piece of comedy that's out there. It, it's a very small cross section between like intellectual and sarcastic humor, and occasionally a, uh, a uh, surprising or physical bit will get me, but that only works once or twice. You know, I can't. I can very rarely do it multiple times, and it make a whole lot of sense to me. Which is why you do not appreciate Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther movies. No. For uh, okay, I should put a caveat. I like the original Pink Panther because I love David Niven. But past <laughs> that, you know. Okay. So. All right, to recap for everybody, uh, in case, uh, since I didn't do the averages at home, we agreed on a 9.5 for Legacy, which, oddly enough, I talked you up on. Impact Significance, we had a 5.5 average. Novelty, 8. Classicness, 6.75 average. Rewatchability was a 6. 9.5 for Audience Score, so out of a 95%. The Critic Score actually is 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, that gives us a total of 45.25 points. So okay. pretty well right in the, the smack dab of the middle of the list. Okay. So any remaining questions? I don't. I've seen this film enough. I've heard enough. I've read enough. I've talked about it. Seen enough interviews being done by the Pythons. I've watched all the specials they've done. So, no, I don't have any remaining questions. I only have one. What is the capital of Assyria? Yeah. All right. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing WALL-E with special guest Roger Walkoff which, as I mentioned earlier, is available on Disney+, Plus. so please go watch that before you listen to next week's episode. You won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whatever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at at gmotepodcast, or the greatest movie of all time is available through the show links that are in the episode notes. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.